0: Hello everyone, welcome to episode 65 of the Ask Abhijit show and today is a a session in which I am going to answer your questions that I have taken from the comments, as you know. So let's see who all is here, I can see Dungar Singh Johan, Ram Ram, Sarji, Arpan, Divyang Patel, Rushi, Manik, Super Rex, Parvati, Sudip, Animish, Shivaji Raje, Sena, Arpan, Aprame, Rishikesh Sharma, Shikhar Saraf, Kushdev, Sampriti Goswami Prabhav, uh, UC Big Girl, Dictatorship is Best, Katsura, Sanjay Kumar, Srishti, Chiching, Rishikesh, uh, Richie Mills, Harshit 2.0, Jeet, Deba Shrit, Sudanshu, Abhishek Srivastav, Manik, uh, and lots of other people. So good evening, good day to all of you. Very nice to be with you all here again. And uh, let us let us get right into it. Let's not waste any time as always. Let's get right into the questions. So let me start with the first question for tonight, which is about what's going on, COVID. So two questions, one is by Dungar Singh Johan, one is by Aditya Srivastav. Will we ever be able to eradicate COVID from the planet or will it just keep mutating and troubling us? Can we completely exterminate this virus? And is the Omicron variant of COVID a propaganda or is it a real thing? And when will the lockdown game end? So The first question is, will we ever be able to eradicate COVID from the planet? No, we will not be able to eradicate COVID from the planet. The the virus will keep mutating. It will keep evolving. It will want to become a successful virus as opposed to a failed virus. So what is the difference between a successful virus and a failed virus from an evolutionary perspective? Let's understand that. So viruses are very strange uh, Creatures, you could say, they are extremely small, much smaller than a bacterium. A virus is, is kind of like a crystal, but it contains DNA. It contains big bits of genetic code. A virus is like a genetic idea, you know. Uh, so that's what a virus is, and it infects uh, animals, humans, etc. And it wants to be successful in the sense that it wants to be able to live in the human host without troubling the human host too much so that it can replicate and it can pass on its genes to the next generation and so on and so forth so take a virus like ebola it it kills people in in i mean the 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 mortality rate is extremely high more than 40 50% i, I think at least more than 40% so that is a virus that kills its host that is a very bad virus it is not going to survive for very long right as opposed to that a successful virus is a is a virus that infects the host but doesn't cause any trouble to the host so it is it's able to survive long term so covid right now is not a very good virus in that sense from an evolutionary perspective because it does have a certain mortality mortality rate the mortality rate is quite low actually it's not a very harmful virus overall but as it evolves, it's going to become, it's going to try and become more transmissible and less deadly to humans. That is its long-term game plan for success. That's how evolution works. So the newer variants are going to be more transmissible. It'll be, it'll become easier for these viruses to try to pass from, pass on from one person to another. And at the same time, the mortality rate will go down because they will be less harmful to the humans, that they, that they which is the host. So this new variant that we have found, the Omicron variant, uh, the South African doctors, etc., they have reported that it's not a very deadly virus. It doesn't cause high rates of hospitalization. It doesn't cause uh, lots of deaths or any such thing, but it seems to be more transmissible its transmissibility rate is higher. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. The newer variants are going to be more transmissible and less deadly. And slowly, slowly, what's going to happen is that this is going to become like a, like, like the flu. The flu virus appears every year. There's a flu season in which some new strain or new variant of the flu virus appears. And, uh, you know, it's, no no one really bothers about it. In, in, In the West, in the US, there is an annual, inoculation, well, you know, you take flu sh- flu, bo- flu shots, booster shots and all that every year, once a year and so on. But in India and in other countries, we don't really bother. And uh, it does cause a few deaths here and there. It's usually people who have uh, pre-existing conditions and people who are advanced in age and so on. So the coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus is eventually going to become like that. It's going to become like a chronic condition that afflicts humankind, but doesn't really trouble us very much. So it's going to be. I think it's going to be impossible to eradicate the virus from the planet. It is going to keep mutating. It will not trouble us in the future as as much as it has troubled us. Uh, troubled us in 2020 and 2021. It's going to become less virulent, and the mortality rate will go down. We will also adapt to to this new virus. Our immunity, our our immune systems will uh, develop the kind of the, the the defenses that are required to. Uh, to combat this virus. So it's going to become like a chronic condition in humankind. Eventually, after 100 years or so, it's going to be something that everybody has, I suppose, and it doesn't bother anybody. So that's what I expect. But this decade, like I've said in other places also, is going to be the decade of the virus. Governments are really happy in, in a sense that this thing has happened. It gives them a great deal of control over human beings, over the populations. Uh, they can impose newer, um, more and more, rules arbitrary rules on the people wear masks or else do this or else take a booster shot every year or else and so on and so forth so the, we are we are witnessing an increase in authoritarianism and this is going to go on for the next decade they are going to every time some new variant appears even if it is not as deadly as the previous ones they are going to create a big panic the media is going to create a big panic because the media is funded by well various global players and the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies are profiting from this, so it's going to go on. So this is going to be the decade of the virus. It's going to be that way in the West for sure. How the Indian government reacts uh, has to be seen. I hope that the, I am pretty sure that the Indian government's reaction is going to be more sensible. Uh, right now, there's a wait and watch uh, policy being adopted to the Omicron oh variant. But, uh, and I hope that we are not going to shut down air travel and all that. We have just begun, uh, we were, India was supposed to uh, restart air travel uh, from foreign countries and and so on uh, in December. So I hope that that is not paused. India needs to reopen completely. And we have already uh, uh, inoculated, we have already vaccinated, I mean, more than a billion people, at least one dose. So, we just need to go on and finish this job, two vaccinations, and I think then we can see how it goes. So, I don't think that it's going to be a big problem, this Omicron variant, but uh, the political game is going to go on for the foreseeable future. That's how it's going to be. This is the so called new normal, like everyone says. Okay, next question okay this is a question i've got a lot of lots of people have asked me this question so i've taken three such examples it's about the lady kangana ranaut uh, chaya says what are your thoughts about kangana's statement that india got independence in 2014 not in 1947 uh the second is uh, what are your thoughts on what she said recently 1947 may beek may militi etc uh Deep Roy says the real question is that India got independence in 2014, etc. So, uh, what she says, what what I've heard is that she said that, Bharat uh, ko swatantrata 20 2014 mein 1947 mein nahi 1947 mein swatantrata mein or something to to that effect. So that's the kind of statement she made. Do I agree with it? I agree with her completely. 1947 was a transfer of power. It was an undemocratic transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks who were selected by the. British who were leaving, but the system stayed the same, right? The constitution that was imposed upon India undemocratically was a foreign constitution. It is foreign in its morality, in its laws, in its uh, values, everything. So what independence is that? Where is the Azadi that they speak about? And her second statement is that India got independence in 2014, not in 1947. About that, I don't quite agree. India still hasn't got independence in 2014. Even today in 2021, we don't have real independence. We are still laboring under this foreign constitution, under the foreign laws, under all these institutions in India that are all British in origin, these laws that are British in origin, everything that we are governed under is British or Western or European in origin. We are not governed under our own uh, civilizational values. We don't have laws or constitution or governance that is rooted in Indian civilization values. So we are still, it's it's just as if we are still under foreign occupation. And the worst thing is that everybody in India is so brainwashed, they don't realize it. They actually like it, right? So these are the problems that we have. So I don't quite uh, agree that we got independence in 2014. 2014 was a good step. I think many of you will disagree. I think many of you, I perfectly respect that. Everybody has the right to uh, their own perspective on politics and all that. My perspective is crystal clear. Twenty fourteen was a good good step, but it's it's the the battle is far from won. There are enormous problems that still uh, lie ahead. It's a huge mountain to climb. So twenty fourteen was a good step. But it was not the Swatantrata that we are looking for. Swatantrata, Azadi, whatever you want to call it, will come when we will have a new constitution, new laws, and the entire system of governance will be replaced by an Indian system of governance that puts the people on top and not the bureaucrats and politicians on top. Today, you still have a system in which there is no democracy, internal democracy within political parties. Take any political party that you want to think of. Some have better systems, but most are just... uh, family owned proprietorships and that's why every election you will find in local elections and whatever the same old politicians again and again and so on and so forth so you know these are the problems that that india faces where is the independence we still are not independent but uh let me just uh, say about kangana ranaut that i have a great deal of respect for her you know my views about bollywood i do not (laughs) you know exactly what i think about Bollywood. Now this lady, she is essentially is an outsider in Bollywood. She has uh, succeeded in an industry that is so hostile to her. And she has not compromised on her values and her principles. I really admire that. She's one person in Bollywood who I uh, support and admire. She doesn't need my stamp of approval or, or anything. It is a thing, but I just because many people have asked me about that. so So that's my answer. Okay, this is another question that lots of people have asked. So let's take a look at that. Uh, These are just three examples. I've got lots of these, you know. So should Indians be proud because the new CEO of Twitter is an Indian? Doesn't that show the problem in our own education system and the brain drain problem? Uh, Second question is, most of American tech companies have Indian origin CEOs. Are the companies making these people CEOs to attract Indian youth to their platform? By this move, they are making uh, profits in Indian markets. These CEOs are only puppets and have no role in the decision-making. What do you think about this? And the third one is that we see many multinational national companies promoting Indians to higher ranks in their companies. Is this a method to put the trouble on somebody else by like appointing a puppet? And do the re- does the recent change in Twitter CEO have something to do with coups increasing influence? Okay, so the question is, Why are so many Indians uh, being appointed as CEOs in American and Western, mainly American companies? Because you see lots of companies like uh, Google, Alphabet, Google, uh, uh, Microsoft, uh, and and lots of other examples exist. And the latest one is Mr. Uh, Agrawal, Agrawal, uh, who is now the CEO of Twitter. He has replaced Mr. Jack. Mr Jack has stepped down and Mr Agarwal has taken over as a CEO and we can see some changes happening on Twitter people have been noticing certain changes so why is it that so many Indians are being appointed they are they are being elevated to the top positions in various companies right Inter- interesting question well Indians are great managers Indians are great at management the british discovered this when they occupied india in the 1700s 1700s right The British discovered that Indians make great managers. They're good at managing people and doing all the hard work, the the drudge work, the donkey work and all that. So, and that is a a skill that Indians seem to have in in abundance. And Indians are very hardworking when they go abroad. They are determined to succeed at any cost. They are very well educated. They have all the traits, all the qualities that makes a good manager and a good employee and all that. And that's why... Because there are so many Indians there, they they are succeeding. Uh, And Indians, as we know, are are a very successful minority community or minority group in the US. So that's one of the reasons why these people are being elevated as CEOs, chief executive operators, uh, um, officers and so on, very high level positions, but they don't own these companies. They are simply the top employees. So Mr. Sundar Pichai, is the top employee in Google or Alphabet. Mr. Satya Nadella is the top employee in Microsoft. Mr. Parag Agarwal is the top employee in Twitter, but these are employees. They are not owners. The people who wield the real power and the real decision-making ability in these companies are the shareholders, the majority shareholders. right? The people who own uh, significant amounts of stock of these companies. So, these indian guys who are succeeding, indian guys and girls who are succeeding and and rising to the top they are simply employees they may have some stock options and all that they may have very high salaries because they've risen to the top and yet they are simply employees they do as they are told they are in charge of the day to day decision making and strategizing strategic affairs etc of the company and so on but the overall big picture decision making is done by the st- sh- uh, shareholders the people who actually own the companies. So it is a good thing for Indians. uh, Is it a matter of pride for Indians? Lots of people have asked me this. Well, it tells you that Indians can succeed. Indians have the qualities to succeed and rise to the very top of the the biggest companies in the world. Clearly, so Indians have this unfortunate inferiority complex. So that should kind of alleviate a little bit of that. But again, the thing is that it doesn't really uh, help India in any way. It doesn't help India geopolitically, strategically, uh, in the international forum, etc., and so on. It doesn't really help India, right? It helps those countries. It they are essentially building the intellectual capital and the intellectual uh, and the and the platforms for the U.S. It helps the U.S. Whatever they're doing, it doesn't help India. So we have to remember that. And is this a ploy? To um, the other question is that uh, these are only puppets. Well, they're not puppets. They're employees. They don't have they have a lot of decision making uh, leeway on a day-to-day basis on a strategic level, etc. But the overall uh, decision making is done at the top. Now, is this? Uh, uh, what's the other question? Is this? Is this a method to put? What is the other question? One second, let me see. Ah, is this uh, done to attract Indian youth youth to their platform to make profits in the Indian market? Not. Quite so. I don't think it's uh, they are doing this to attract Indians. That is not the primary reason. The primary reason is that they are good managers, right? So that is the real reason why it is being done. And does this have to, something to do with Ku's increasing influence? I don't think Ku is even a hundredth of what Twitter is. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing that uh, some Indian uh, that an Indian social media company a uh, platform has emerged. It seems to be reasonably good. It is being promoted by, uh, I think, Republic TV or something. So it's it's a good thing, but it it is it has not put a dent in the market. It has not put uh, sent. It has not had any real effect on uh, social media. It is not seen by as any kind of serious competitor thus far. To Twitter. It may become in the future if all Indians adopt it and actually start leaving Twitter, then it will become a competitor. But as of today, it's not really a big deal. So I don't think coup has had any real uh, impact in uh, appointing Mr. Parag Agarwal as the CEO of Twitter. So this is an interesting thing that's happening. We're going to see more of this. More Indians are going to be appointed and this is the trend that we are going to see. So it should tell you that Indians are really good at management. The thing is, Indians are also good at start at startups. Many, many, many startups in Silicon Valley have been founded by Indians. Those are not as visible as the high profile CEOs. So Indians have not only managerial skills, they have entrepreneurial skills and leadership skills. So these are things that will uh, uh, stand India in good stead in the long run, in the domestic Indian market okay this is a next the next question is the next statement is the star plus mahabharat was a revolution in the modern day television world as it ignited the interest to learn about the mahabharat in the bhagavad gita in the minds of crores of youths okay so i haven't watched any of these uh, tv series tv serials mahabharat ramayan if, if there is any i'm not sure about that i haven't watched it if it is a good if these are good serials great uh, if it has ignited the interest to learn about these uh, parts of india's ancient history it's a very good thing but let me issue a word of caution my dear friends i had put up this uh, poll on uh, on the community tab of this channel asking uh, i'm looking at here looking at it here on a different screen the question was what is your primary source of knowledge about the mahabharat uh, i had given four options i have read an english translation i have read a translation into in an indian language i have watched a tv series and i have got it from Wikipedia and the internet. These are the four options. So 71% said that their primary source of knowledge for Mahabharata is TV series. 9% said Wikipedia and the internet. 13% said English, uh, Indian language translation, and 7% said English translation. So 80% of the people of the respondents there are like 17,000 votes, which is a significantly good sample. So 80% of the respondents have said that their primary source of knowledge for the Mahabharat is either a TV series or Wikipedia and the internet. Listen, I don't mean to make fun of anybody. Okay, this is a serious matter, <laughs> right? Let me, please understand this, my friends, please understand this. A TV series is not a reliable source of information for historical events. The Mahabharat is not mythology. It is not fiction, no matter what some people will say. It is itihas. It actually happened. Some of the things about all the supernatural abilities and fantastic weapons and people flying in the air and all, if such things are there, that is just embellishments. Much of it is just allegorical. But it is all rooted, grounded in actual events that happened in the deep antiquity of Indian history. Now, TV series are not a reliable source of information, for the Mahabharata or the Ramayana or the Bhagavad Gita or any such thing. TV series need masala for people to watch. That's why they create these uh, artificial conflicts between characters. TV series are driven by characters, not by events and not by the actual events that happen. TV series put try to create artificial conflicts between characters that never existed in real life. Karna versus Arjun. And to create a controversy, they will show that, Arjun, uh, that Karna was better than Arjun and he has been unfairly... Treated in Indian history and he has been unfairly regarded, and all Indian history is wrong. And we have been so uh, so this there has been so much discrimination against people like Karna and all that. They have been reg- they have been unfairly painted bad and, and such nonsense. So, TV series will always distort history in order to get more viewership, more TRPs. Please, please, my friends, understand that you cannot rely on a TV series to uh, draw your uh, to, as the primary source of knowledge for these things many 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 i mean hundreds of comments i've got that you are wrong abhijit karna was not taught by taught by dronacharya he was taught by parshuram are bhai please read the actual sources please i i implore you you cannot get knowledge by watching a tv series the, whatever knowledge will you you will get will be distorted incorrect, much of it will be distorted, much of it will be incorrect. Please, you cannot get information without reading it, you have to either read the original Sanskrit text, which which 99% will not be able to read, I understand, of course, we can't. Otherwise, you can read an Indian language translation into your mother tongue, or read an English language translation. Don't read a translation by Devdutt Patnak, please, I beg you. But read a, a good English language translation. It's okay to read an abridged version also. For example, I have an abridged version of the Mahabharat here by Chakravarti Rajagopalachari. It's an English version thing. At least it's a text that tries to be as faithful as possible to the actual events. When it comes to the Bhagavad Gita, I have another another book here. It's by Bibek Debroy. It's a word to word translation from Sanskrit to English. There is no there is no commentary in it. You know, lots of translations of the Bhagavad Gita will have an entire commentary apart from the translation, in which the, the whoever has written the book will give their own gyan about the about the events. It's a personal thing, but I dislike commentaries. I just want a translation. So it's for you to decide what works best for you, but please read it at least once. Read a translation, read the original read an abridged version but read watching the series is going to misguide you mislead you okay i think i've said enough about this please please learn uh, please heed my words thank you okay next question this is by adarsh shukla is it possible to crack the iit jee advanced exam in 6 months sir batao na itna wait karwa rahe <laughs> Listen, I don't know where you're starting from. See, when you climb a mountain, it's easier to climb if you have reached the base camp. It's easier to reach the top if you are an experienced mountaineer. If you are somebody who has no physical fitness and and you want to climb a mountain, it's going to be impossible. So I don't know what is your starting point. Are you already good at math or do you already have the basics uh, clear? If that is the case, then certainly you can crack the IIT-JE advanced exam in six months. If you have a good grasp of the fundamentals of the mathematics and the physics and whatever else is there, if you have a good grasp of that already, it's very easy to crack the IIT-JE advanced exam. It's just a question of uh, preparing. But if you do not have a good grasp of the fundamentals, then it will be significantly difficult. So you have not given me that data, that information. So I can't really tell you. But as long as you have a reasonably good grasp of of the basics, you should be able to do it. All right. So go ahead and all the best. Okay. This is by Yashwant Raj. My board exams of class 10 aren't going well. I am being a little depressed due to the pressure of society, parents, and teachers In spite of uh, knowing the reality of the system, please help. Okay. See, let me tell you this, Yashwant, that an exam is not an indicator of your worth as a human being. And it is not an indicator of the success that you will have in your uh, post-academic life. Let's say you don't do well in the 10th exam. You don't get the stellar marks that everybody expects. Big deal. 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, nobody will care, nobody will remember. What matters is what you make of your life once you're done with the the nonsense of studying. I know there's going to be pressure from society, parents, teachers. They want you to get good marks. They want you to conform to the rules of society. They want you to take everything safe and get a nice good job, 9 to 5, get married, have kids and all. They want you to be average. Right? And many exceptional people don't do well in academic life. I can give you hundreds of examples. So the thing is this, I understand that you are a young guy. We've all been there. You're a young guy. 10th is a very big deal. 12th is an even bigger deal, right? So let's say you don't do well in 10th. Okay, fine. T K, It's life. Do well in the 12th. There's always tomorrow. So don't get uh, depressed. Look at the bigger picture. Right now, I understand everybody will be pressurizing you, parents, teachers, all that. It's Okay you need to see the thing in life is that you have to develop a thick skin and you need to stop worrying about what others think and stop trying to please people do what pleases you do what is best for you but after understanding the realities of life so if you think that this pleases me but it's going to be it's going to end uh, cause you to fail in life don't do that but if you have a reasonably good plan then you should follow that Uh, so the thing is see we are not born to please everybody we are born to discover our own path in life and then follow that to the best of our abilities. So there are ups and downs in life. You will sometimes do badly in exams. You may not do not do very well. It's all right. Take it in your stride and look for the future and take the next step and do well there. All right. So what I can say is that do not get depressed, be be brave. And be positive. Things will turn out well. You are young. It is fine to fail a few times and not do well a few times when you're young. When you are young, you should try a lot of things and fail in a lot of things. That is what gives you experience and that's what you, gives you a, a better and truer understanding of how the world works. So it is nothing. It's just one of the milestones in a very long life. Do not take it very seriously. If you don't do well this time, go for the tw- wait for the 12th and do very well there. So be positive and chin up. (laughs) All right, this is by Romal Momand. Uh, I'm a Pashtun, but then why do Israel and Jewish people claim that Pashtun tribes are one of the lost ten Jewish tribes? So this is a statement, a claim that I have seen lots of time on my channel in the comments. I have a few. I have done lots of. questions about Afghanistan. I had a few episodes entirely dealing with Afghanistan and so on. And I have said that the Afghan Pashtun people are an extension of the Indian population. They are the, They have the same origins. They have the same ancestry. They have the same culture. And now it's different, but they still have the same genes. And lots and lots of Pashtuns have come and said, you are wrong. What are you talking about? Please read please understand the truth and you are wrong. We are not Indians. We are this. We are Jews. We are Arabs. We are are Turks. We are uh, Israelis uh, or or Persians or something, but not Indians. Anyhow, we are not Indians. We are anything except Indians. That's what the Pashtuns claim. And I understand why the claim is there. Now, let me uh, bring you Back to reality. So yeah, one of the major claims they make is that they are one of the lost, one of the ten lost Jewish tribes that they their origin is in Israel. They, their ancestors were Jews. That's what they claim. Now let me share my screen with you and uh, let us bring in a, a slight dose, slight small dose of reality, shall we? Uh, one second, please give me a second. Let me move things around and let me share my screen with you. Okay, so this is a genetic research paper uh, about Afghanistan's ethnic groups, which share a Y chromosomal heritage structured by historical events, which is which should not surprise anybody. All right, so let's take a look at what it says. See, it says this haplogroups autoxys to India, which means that originate in India, were found more in Pashtuns and Tajiks than in Uzbeks and Hazaras. Okay, that is point number one. So Pashtuns and Tajiks are more are closer to India genetically than the Uzbeks and Hazaras. Let's take a look at this. Uh, the Afghan Pashtuns and Tajiks are closer to North and West Indians than to the other Afghans like Hazaras and Uzbeks. Well, there you have this again. Now let's take a look at one more statement prevailing Y chromosomal lineage in Tajiks and Pashtuns has the highest observed diversity among populations of the Indus Valley. Now what is Indus Valley? That's India, present-day Pakistan and India, but mainly India. Uh, Various analyses have identified a significant affinity between Pashtuns, Tajiks, North Indians and West Indian populations. Well, once again, you see that again West India and North India Gene flow from Afghanistan, gene flow flow to Afghanistan from India, marked by the Indian lineages L, H, and R2, also seems to involve mostly Pashtuns and Tajiks, right? And the gene flow etc. suggests that interactions could have existed since at least the establishment of the region's first civilizations, the Indus Valley and the BMAC. Well, how interesting is that? Where is the Israeli lineage? Where is the, <laughs> where is the uh, Jewish lineage? Now let me show you another paper. This is a different research paper. Again, genetics. Afghanistan from a Y-chromosomal perspective. So let's take a look at this. Right? It says that Our study demonstrates genetic similarities between Pathans from Afghanistan and and Pakistan, both of which are characterized by a predominance of the haplogroup R1A1A, and so on. Now, if you have been watching my channel, and if you have been listening to what I've been saying over the past many months, R1A1A, R1 itself, is Indian origin. It's an Indian origin haplogroup, all right? And what this paper actually finds, if you read it in detail, is that over 50% of the population of Pathans, Pashtuns, in northern Afghanistan carries this Indian origin haplogroup. And if you go down south of Afghanistan, then the percentage increases to more than 60, 65, 67% of Pashtuns carrying the Indian origin haplogroup R1A. So once again, it tells you that the Pashtuns are of Indian origin. Where is the Jewish lineage or whatever it is? And this is just two papers. I can show you lots more, but then I will spend the whole day doing this. I've shown you two genetic research papers. Look around. There are lots more. Every single piece of research tells you that Pashtuns are an extension of the Northern and Western Indian population of the Indian population itself, because there is no real difference between North and South India, which again is borne out by genetic research papers of course some research papers try to impute some kind of affinity between the pashtuns and the jews but that is just <laughs> there is just uh, they're just trying to create something out of nowhere there is no actual evidence hard genetic evidence that actually ties these two ethnic groups so afghans pashtuns and indians they are the same uh the same ethnic group essentially all right so so that's that's what i can say about this so i have just demonstrated from two research papers look look around there are lots more research papers which will corroborate the same thing so this entire business of the pashtuns being jews is a myth pashtuns are descendants of ancient indians and that's that's just a fact all right this is by ayush ayush says if gandhi ji's satyagraha or something like that was not useful then how did the farmer protests become successful because they were also like satyagraha? Also, once Albert Einstein said that future generations will not believe that a man like Gandhi would have even walked this planet Earth. So, according to your theory, even Einstein was a fool. <laughs> so, essentially, I'm a fool, right? So, Ayushji, what I would say is this. Are the these farmers' protests that you speak about, were they like satyagrahas? A satyagraha is by definition a non-violent peaceful protest, yes. What happened on 26th of uh, what happened on Republic Day 2020? Was that a Gandhian peaceful protest? And have you heard of all the murders that happened during the farmer protests and all the people who died, etc.? Do you know of the violence that went on in the farmer protests? Do you do you consider that to be Satyagraha? I mean, sir, what are you talking about? Okay, you said that they were successful, they were not really successful, the government has just done the pragmatic thing right now and called off the farm laws because of certain things. For instance, this was being construed by various political parties, we know who they are. This was being construed as the farm laws were being construed as anti-Sikh laws. This was being turned into a communal issue. And it is very easy to fool people in this country because people, while the education system makes them amenable to misinformation. So the farm laws were being construed by certain political parties as anti-Sikh laws. This was becoming dangerous. Why? What is the percentage of Sikhs in the Indian Armed Forces? How many lakh Sikhs do you have? 2 lakh, 3 lakh Sikh uh, soldiers and uh, and personnel in the Indian Armed Forces? And if this becomes a sentiment, that the farm laws in the government are specifically anti Sikh, then do you understand the implications of that? So that is why the government took a pragmatic step in considering the national security situation to take down the farm laws right now. It is not a successful thing. What they tried to do on Republic Day in Delhi was to try and provoke a Tiananmen Square-like situation. The government could have used force to disperse these protest, so-called protesters, but the government showed a great deal of restraint. And these people, I mean, the the people or the forces behind the so-called farmers' protests, they did not succeed in, 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 in uh, painting India as a fascist and evil country. Because if the government had used violence, then they would have succeeded in doing that. Then all the foreign media would have had a field day. Trying to create uh, draw parallels between Tehran Theranman Square and Delhi and so on, so you know what the farmers' protests have not really succeeded in that sense, and they were not peaceful protests in any way whatsoever. So your the the parallel that you're trying to draw is unfortunately not correct. It's not consistent with reality. It it exists in some alternate reality in a different universe perhaps. Now Einstein see albert einstein was a theoretical physicist one of the greatest of the 20th century maybe one of the greatest of all time his specialization was physics was he a historian no he was not a historian did he have any understanding of geopolitics he did not have an understanding of geopolitics did he understand politics he hated politics and the thing about scientists and people in general is that once they reach a certain age, it, de- it depends from person to person, but after a scientist, typically, especially theoretical physicists, because I know them, once a theoretical physicist reaches the age of 65 or 70 or maybe more, then their understand, their, their perception of the world seems to get warped and they start doing things that, <laughs> that they would not have ever done when they were younger. So Einstein, once he became older, he became a political activist, he became a liberal, the kind of liberalism that goes around nowadays, anti-war and don't do violence and don't use science and technology in warfare and so on and so forth. I am not saying it's a bad thing, but he was swept into, he was drawn into that. And in those days, the British had this great propaganda going on that Gandhi is a saint He is one of the greatest uh, saints and he was called a Mahatma. So Einstein bought into it. I don't blame him for that. But he was not somebody who understood history or geopolitics or politics or imperialism or colonialism or, or any of that. So he was one of the millions of people who was misled by the propaganda. He was not a fool when it comes to theoretical physics, but he was a fool to get into politics and to get into these things. Did he understand Gandhi? Of course he did not understand Gandhi. He did not understand how the world works. He was a scientist and scientists are good at what they do. It's a very laser focused profession. So he was completely, utterly wrong there. I would never call Einstein a fool. All right. But he was wrong. If you are a specialist in a certain field, you may certainly be wrong in other other things. There's nothing surprising about that. So Mr. Einstein was wrong about Mr. Gandhi, all right? Okay, two questions about the constitution. One is by Archana. Hello, Archana. <laughs> uh, does our present prime minister have the power to implement a new constitution? The second is by Shreya Patil. Do you think the current system, that is the constitution, laws, bureaucracy, judiciary, etc., obstruct and resist The process of forming a new constitution and then implement it, which is replacing the constitution. If yes, how will they affect? Okay, the first question is, does the current Prime Minister or any Prime Minister have the power to implement a new constitution? No. There is nothing in the constitution of India that allows you to discard the constitution and start and create a new constitution. It simply won't allow it. It is designed to stay here forever. A a bunch of old men who wrote this constitution in in, in 1948-49-50, we are supposed to, in the 21st century, live by this 500-page constitution that they wrote. It is supposed to govern us forever in the 21st century, 22nd century, 23rd century, forever. That is the way they have designed the constitution. There is no provision in the constitution that allows you to discard this constitution and bring in a new one, right? Even if you want to do a constitutional amendment or change some part of the constitution, you need all kinds of, it's a very long convoluted procedure that essentially involves the legislators or legislatures of the entire country, of all the states and so on and so forth. It's a very long drawn out process. The entire process is designed to be slow, cumbersome and resistant to any kind of change or progress. So if the prime minister wants to do it, he will not be able to do it constitutionally and the laws the bureaucracy the constitution judiciary and so on and so forth of course they obstruct the the process of forming a new constitution or or doing any kind of significant change in the country it's almost impossible to do anything such as that so in the future someday hopefully soon if or when a new constitution is brought in, it is going to be brought in through extra-constitutional means. So we're gonna have we're gonna have to wait for a leader with the fortitude to be able to do that. Right. This is by Tiger Commando Squad. The question is. Tamil is known as the oldest language, even though it's the second oldest language. But why is that? And why are the so-called Dravidian languages different from the so-called Aryan languages? By the way, my mother tongue is Telugu. Wonderful. So first of all, see, yesterday I was on uh, a discussion on the Jaipur dialogues uh, with Dr. Neeraj Raid, uh Dr. Shiv Shastri, Mr. Oak, and uh, Sanjayji, obviously. So the discussion was about the Aryan invasion theory. And Dr. Shiv Shastri made a very interesting point that there that we have, we are supposed to have two language families in India, the Indo-Aryan language family and the Dravidian language family. And the Indo-Aryan language family is part of the Indo-European language family. So according to this theory, there should be more commonality between Indo-Aryan languages and European languages because they are part of the same language family and there should be very little commonality between the Indo-Aryan languages and the so-called Dravidian languages, because these are two separate different language families. And yet what we find is that, what do we find? We have 40-50% commonality between Indo-Aryan and so-called Dravidian languages. And we only have 5-10% similarity, that too if you go deep down to uh, linguistics, between Indian languages, Indo-Aryan languages and Indo-European languages. So Indo-Aryan languages are so close, are are very close to Dravidian languages and very distant from Indo-European languages and yet we are supposed to be part of the same language family as the Indo-European languages and not the Dravidian languages, which makes no sense whatsoever from the perspective of logic, linguistics or anything else. So this entire story of Indo-Aryan and Dravidian language families, two different separate language families, is a myth. It's a lie. We're going to have to do we're going to have to analyze Indian languages a priori from beginning from zero without any assumptions at all and that day will come when we for we start our own linguistic uh, linguistics research programs in India now Tamil the question which you asked is Tamil is known as the oldest language even though it's the second oldest language that's what uh, many people believe I mean this is a claim that t- people from Tamil Nadu make all the time, Tamil is the oldest language, uh, it, is, it has been around for millions of years, or thousands of years, and it is way older than Sanskrit, and so on. Okay, that's what they say. Now the oldest uh, known examples of the Tamil language are from Sangam literature, from around 300 BCE at the oldest. The oldest examples are from 300 BCE. Sangam literature. What is the meaning of the word Sangam? Does anybody know the meaning of the word Sangam? It means a meeting, a fraternity, a gathering, an academy. In which language? In Sanskrit. Sangam comes from Sangha in Sanskrit. The oldest Tamil literature has a Sanskrit name. That's, isn't that strange? Right? So the oldest evidence hard evidence of tamil is from around 300 bce now let me explain some. let me let me reveal something strange there is a village in guntur district of andhra pradesh it's called Bhakti prolu batti prolu in guntur district of andhra pradesh in this village there is a very ancient archaeological site where they have found evidence of the old, the oldest evidence of the telugu language and this evidence is from around 400 BC, which is at least 100 years older than the oldest evidence of Tamil. So Telugu from the data, from the evidence that we have is older than the Tamil language. Look it up. Google it so telugu from this evidence is older than tamil sanskrit goes back thousands of years the oldest uh, known evidence that we have is from uh, the mittani kingdom in anatolia which is from 1500 or so something like that bce but the, that is only the, and the and the sanskrit which is found there is late vedic sanskrit late vedic it is way, way older, uh, Way, I mean, it, it comes many, it, it comes a great deal of time after the Rig Veda. So the Rig Veda was clearly written way before that, and so on and so forth. So you know what, Tamil is not even the second oldest language. Telugu, from the evidence that we have is older than Tamil. I, I wonder why the people of, of Telangana, Andhra Pradesh don't know about this. I Suppose your teachers and your textbooks don't teach you or don't want you to know about this. So, the, from the hard archaeological evidence, Telugu is older than Tamil. There you go. Avinash says, Do all spiral galaxies rotate in the same direction? Does the Milky Way galaxy spin clockwise or anti clock or counterclockwise? You know what? There is no up or down in space, whether it is. Clockwise or counterclockwise, whether it is leg spin or off spin, depends on where you're looking from. There is no upper down. So if you look from one position, it may look like clockwise. If you look from another position, it may look counterclockwise, clockwise. So they sort of rotate in various directions. There is no uh, universal plane like you have a galactic plane. So you will find galaxies in all kinds of orientations as seen from Earth. Some will be beautiful spirals because we are head on. Some will be flat disks, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the flat disk kind of thing, because we are seeing it side on, and so on and so forth. So there is no up or down in space. The rotation can happen in any direction as seen from our vantage point from Earth. So that's just how it is. You know, there is no up or down. The, this this uh, sensation of up and down, clockwise, counterclockwise, is just because of the gravity of the Earth. And we are tied to the Earth. That's why we see, th- see the universe from that perspective. But in space, there is no gravity, there is no up or down. So you will see galaxies rotating in every which direction. Okay, Bobby asks, how did China influence India historically? Was the influence marginal? When did India and China first contact each other? What are the original borders between India and China? Or, Or was it always Tibet and India and such? It seems that within their own records, they never occupied the Southern portion, at least through force, which we had called Indochina, so when did a migration occur from China to Southeast Asia? See, we don't have any clear evidence of a migration from China to, to Southeast Asia. Uh, the genetic origins of the Southeast Asian people are quite diverse. Uh, they seem to belong to what is known as the Austronesian ethnic group, whatever that is. I, I haven't studied this, to be very honest, in great detail. The way I have studied Indian genetics and linguistics but i am aware of the, the multiplicity the the, the plentitude of uh, genetic origins in southeast asia there is a significant component genetic component in southeast asia whether it's cambodia whether it's indonesia laos vietnam there is a significant component from kalinga in india there is also a tamil component and there are also the so called austronesian component and so so the genetic origins are quite mixed in central asia in southeast asia and there seems to be a quite minimal contribution genetically from China in the recent times, in the recent centuries, in the second millennium AD, there has been more contact between the Chinese and the people of the so-called Indochina region. So today you will find pe- people in Thailand, many people who will have some Chinese origin, for example Thaksin Shinavatra, the uh, former prime minister, he has some Chinese ancestry, Thailand, his sister, young look, also has uh, obviously some Chinese ancestry. You will find Chinese ancestry in some people in Vietnam and other places, but it is much more recent. It, it's 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 uh, most most of it is is has happened in the past thousand or so years. Now, how did China influence India? Marginal, minimal. There has been almost no influence culturally, etc., of China in India. But the reverse was totally different. So there was this, um, we have a Chinese trade surplus right now, right? So in the old days, we had a cultural surplus with China. They did not uh, influence India in any way at all culturally. But India influenced China profoundly, profoundly through culture. Uh, When did India and China first contact each other? That's a very interesting question. So officially, we would say that it happened about 2,000 or so years ago. Uh, Starting with the Kushans, the great Kushans, Kalishka the Great. He was a very vigorous uh, proselytizer of Indian culture and civilization. He sent emissaries, you could call them missionaries, Hindu and Buddhist missionaries. So you could call them uh, to the east, to China and so on so that's when the rigorous the vigorous and the uh, these uh, cultural contacts started so these were emissaries and merchants etc who went from india into china into into eastern asia starting from kanishka's time but here's the thing when you look at china's mythical history if you look at the mythical founder of china who was the yellow emperor or something he is supposed to have come from the west so he is supposed to have been a non-Chinese person, the mythical ancestor of all the Chinese people. So if you look back into old Chinese myths, you will find that their founding myths are all are actually people who came from the West. In West of China, you had center of heaven, Tianju, which is India. Of course, we don't have any uh, hard evidence of that, but this is the Chinese founding, founding myth, right? So it is possible that the aristocracy of China may have had a Western or maybe Indian origin. West of China was India, so it is possible. That is the myth that they have, but we don't have uh, hard evidence of that. But the real uh, rigorous, vigorous contacts happened after the Kushan age, starting from uh, Emperor Kanishka, who was very, very uh, proactive in spreading Indian culture and civilization eastward and westward also. Uh, And lots of Indian scholars traveled to China, made China their home. Uh, I forget the name, Nagarjuna was one of them, and many others who taught the four Vedas, who taught Buddhism and all. Uh, There was more of an influence of Buddhism, it looks like, I mean, that's what the Western scholars would tell you. But you will find every single Hindu deity present in China and even in Japan, in various forms. And the, then the uh, Japanese, they absorbed Indian culture via China. So they absorbed all the, all these Hindu deities and made them part of Japanese culture. It happened via China. So it's a very interesting part of history. Unfortunately, none of our historians have delved in any way into this. But there's a, there's a lot of history to uncover and unravel here. And it's, it's really interesting. So this is a great question. Okay, the other question uh, which Bobby has asked is, what were the original borders between India and China? There was never any border between India and China. India and China were never neighbors. China has existed for 3,000, 3,500 years. As a as a distinct civilization, China is a civilizational entity, just like India, but it's a much younger civilizational entity. So the Chinese civilization has existed for about three, 000, three and 3,500 years or so, and India and China have never, ever been neighbors. There's always been... Tibet in between. And there was a time in the 7th, was it 8th century AD or something like that, when the Tibetans actually conquered China and they conquered the capital of China. So it's a very interesting history, but India and China have never been neighbors until 1955. That's the story. That's the history. Okay, this is by Sharda Rai. The question is, was the work done by Otto von Bismarck in uniting Germany harder and greater than what Sardar Patel did to unify India. Bismarck is known as the man of blood and iron. Can you compare the problems which Sardar Patel and Bismarck had to face? Whose work was greater? Very interesting question. Very intelligent question. So let's take a look at Mr. Patel first. Well, Patel was, uh, as you know, one of the major uh, leaders of the Congress Party. uh, And he is given the credit, rightfully, of uh, unifying India into one political entity after the British transferred power to the Congress Party. So at that time, in in the British Raj, in British India, you had all these little, tiny, little, so-called princely states. And these princely states were all puppets of the British. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree or not, they were all British puppets. These princely states, they all paid taxes to the British. They all had a collector on their territory, a British collector. They all obeyed the demands and the rules of the British. It was British laws that were in, in, in force, not Indian laws. And they all had political agents, British political political agents. So all these princely states were British puppets. They did not have standing armies. They had small militias and all police forces, etc. But nothing more than that. So India was, when the transfer of power happened, the British put the onus on the Congress party of unifying India. So Mr. Patel, was he took up that responsibility. He went to every single little princely state and he made them uh become part of the republic of india most of them were would w- they did this willingly some of them resisted and they were dealt with junagar was an example where the the nawab of junagar tried to become part of pakistan and did not work here to escape thank you uh, that was good ah uh, hyderabad was an, another example uh, they had the Nizam or whatever the hell that was that guy was called. He had a bunch of terrorists called the Razakars who massacred Indians, Hindus mostly. I would I would imagine. And then he was uh, dealt with appropriately, the Nizam of Hyderabad, and there were other uh, princely states who had to be dealt with in say uh, in various ways. For instance, it is alleged that the uh, Maharaja of Manipur he had a gun put to his head to make him sign the the, the the sec- accession document or whatever it's called, and so on. right? So Mr. Patel was able to deal with all these people. There was a lot of traveling. It was a very uh, time-consuming uh, effort, I, I imagine. So that's what he did. So it was a very big Herculean effort. He went to every single uh, princely state and he made them become part of India through one way or the other. So that is what Mr. Patel did. Now Otto von Bismarck is the great iron chancellor of Germany, uh, 19th century? We are talking about so he gave this great blood and iron speech in, I think, 1961 62. I think it was 1962, and he said that Germany will rise not through soft power or whatever it is, but through blood and iron. So he understood the importance of, of hard power at that time, there was no Germany. There were lots of German states, German-speaking states. The people all spoke German. They were divided between two Christian sects, Protestant and Catholic. In the south, you had the Catholics. In the north, you had the Protestants. The region known as Prussia was in the north, northern regions of Germany. It was mainly Protestant. And you had uh, the Austrian Empire, which was, again, mainly German-speaking, but uh, they were all Catholics. And you had lots of other uh, German-speaking states, you could say, who all had their own rulers. They had their own armies and all, Saxony, Bavaria, uh, and so on and so forth. I don't remember all the names. So it was a fragmented, divided uh, land. Right? There was no nation of Germany so what bismarck did was he went to war multiple times i think there were at least 3 wars during uh, that took place under his leadership he was originally the one of the main state one of the main uh, uh, in a leadership position you could say in prussia he went to war with i think denmark and he got back uh, Holstein and Schleswig or something like that. (laughs) I don't remember the exact names, but yeah, he went to war with Denmark. He was able to regain territory, German territory from the Danes. He went to war with Austria. He defeated Austria. I mean, he personally did not defeat Austria. It was a very brilliant general in his army who defeated the Austrians in seven weeks. And then he was magnanimous to the Austrians. He did not uh, impose humiliating terms on them. He just made sure that they never become part of a unified Germany. That was the only condition he imposed on the Austrians. Then he went to f- war with France. Napoleon III was the emperor of, or, of France. He went to war with France. France was defeated. And there was a lot of politics and lots of diplomacy involved. Very aggressive, ruthless diplomacy. I'm, com- I'm, I'm compressing a whole career into five minutes. But he did all of this. There was a lot of blood, a lot of iron. He defeated Austria. He defeated uh, the, the Danes. Uh, There was some conflict with the Italians also. There was potential conflict with with Russia, with with the British. And there was a war with the French. And he won all the wars. And he unified Germany into one single nation. He was the kingmaker. He turned the king of Prussia into the emperor of Germany. It was a long career. And after all of this was done, unification... He went to work on internal affairs of Germany because this was a, this was a newly unified nation. It had to m- be made a coherent, cohesive whole internally. So the last two decades or so of approximately of his career was uh, spent in integrating Germany internally. And he was very successful at that. Some failures, obviously, everybody has, but overall, he was very successful. Uh, he f- he was removed from power in I think 19 uh, sorry 1890 or thereabouts, and he predicted that in the next 20 or so years Europe is going to tear apart again and there's going to be war. And his prediction was off by four months. He predicted World War One, and his greatest achievement is that after Germany's defeat in World War One the nation that he had unified did not disintegrate. And after Germany's defeat in World War II again, this nation that he had artificially unified did not disintegrate. It is You cannot think of a world without a unified Germany today. After World War II, Germany was divided into East and West, Germany. And yet it all came back together again in 1990, 1991 or thereabouts. So what he did, the, his actions... Bismarck's actions in the 19th century they are still resonating today. The music he played in the 19th century is still being heard whether we realize it or not in the 21st century, right? So the task that he had taken up was enormous. He had to go to war with three very powerful foes, right and he had to be diplomatically ruthless and so on. So the task that he achieved in some senses in some ways, could be regarded as much harder than the task that Sardar Patel had uh, in 1947. Sardar Patel unified an entire subcontinent. But he never had to go to war. He never had to use any real violence. He never faced any real opposition. You could say that some princely states tried to fight, but the militias they had were just police forces. They, had, they were no match against a professional army like the British Indian Army which the Congress party inherited in 1947 or whenever that was. Even the Portuguese tried to hold on to Goa. They had an army of their own. They were easily defeated by the Indian army. The Hyderabadi Razakars, they were just a bunch of thugs. They were no match for the Indian army. So there was no real internal resistance to the reunification of India under Mr. Patel. What Bismarck faced was orders of magnitude worse than that. He had to go to war against very powerful foes on three occasions. He had to, you know, so it was much harder. The thing that worked in favor of Bismarck was that all these 39 principalities that he unified, they were all German speaking. They were all Christian. So that was, that thing worked in his favor. In India, we had all these different languages and all these different uh, you know, sub-national identities that Mr. Patel had to work against. So, so, yeah, both had hard tasks. Mr. Patel never had to go to war, but in some ways, it was harder for him. The territory was much larger. In some ways, it was easier for him. And so that's how it is. So there is no hard and fast comparison. But I would say that Bismarck, what Bismarck did maybe, most likely was a much harder thing to do. And its long-term effect has been perhaps greater. Only history will tell. Let's wait another 100 years (laughs) and our descendants will decide. But yeah, these are the two stories in brief of how these two people unified their respective nations. Okay, this question is, I have seen people claiming that free higher education system will create unemployment. Is that true or is it just propaganda? so today it's true that lots of indians are employed in the education system whether it is public education or private education uh, lots of people want to become teachers or professors or whatever you and it's one of the easier things to do if you have the right uh, if you if you do the right rituals if you pass the right exams and so on it's a, it's reasonably easy to become a teacher or a professor in a college or university or something like that so essentially what we are seeing today is that the education system is being used as an employment generation scheme. The stakeholders in the Indian education system are the teachers, the staff, not the students, not the the citizens of India. The true stakeholders of the education system have to be the citizens. The education system cannot be used as an employment generation scheme. That is not the purpose. The purpose of the education system is to take the country forward by producing leaders and and young citizens who can take the country in the right direction. Productive, confident, successful young citizens. That's what it's supposed to produce. It's not supposed to be an employment generation scheme. So yes, it has been artificially used thus far in the Indian uh, nation as an employment generation scheme. Everything is corrupted in this manner. When you use a system in a way that it is not it is not supposed to be used, that is called corruption. So the education system is corrupt. It serves the professors, the teachers, the staff. It doesn't serve the citizens. So I have said in the past, many times, that in any civilized nation, in any civilized culture, civilization, education and healthcare have to be absolutely free and available equally to all citizens. Regardless of gender, regardless of whatever, right? Every citizen should have the same equal access to free education and free healthcare. So will this create unemployment? Yeah, if you have, if you have corrupted a system, when you clean it up, it's going to cause some unemployment. But it should. The education system is not supposed to be an employment generation scheme. All these people are exploiting the citizens to enrich themselves. So you know, it will not create unemployment. If you create if you have a good education system that that uh, gives the country bright, young, confident, capable citizens, these capable citizens will generate more employment than whatever we are losing from this education system. So we need young dynamic, confident leaders, entrepreneurs and young citizens. And that itself will take care of the uh, unemployment problem because they will take the country forward. They will create new industries, new businesses. They will create lots of, they will generate lots of new jobs and that will solve the problem. So that's the answer. The education system has to be free. It can't happen today, tomorrow, but it should. Ha- there should be a, a long-term plan to do that in the next 10 or 20 years. It's certainly possible in the, in, if, you, if you have a long-term plan like that. So, I hope it happens sooner rather than later. Okay, this is by Ganesh. This is a question lots of people ask me from time to time. If Mr. Nehru was selected by the British and installed by the British by proxy as the Prime Minister of India, why then did he align with the USSR and the communist model of governance Instead of becoming an ally of the Western coalition forces like the US, UK, etc. Very good question. Lots of people have been asking me this question. So let me address it now. Mr. Nehru, the great, the great Mr. Nehru was an Anglophile. He was a British educated person. He was an English speaking person. He loved everything British, English, and so on. His political inspiration was Fabian socialism. He was a member of the Fabian society which is a British thing, Uh, the Fabian society believes in socialism and in effecting change in a country very slowly, very gradually. No revolution, but very slow, steady reforms. That is Fabian socialism, which is very different from the USSR model of rapid, large-scale industrialization. So what Mr. Nehru did was that he was at heart a Fabian socialist. He disagreed with the p- policies of the U- of the UK and the US, even though he was an Anglophile, and that's what he implemented in India. So he was more drawn towards socialism and communism because communism, Marxism, is just uh, is just harder socialism. So the model he implemented in India was fabian socialism very slow gentle steady progress if you can call it progress which is now known as the nehruvian rate of growth indian economy india's economy grew at 2 or 3% during nehru's regime and even later during his party's regimes so in the west they have they have called it the hindu rate of growth but it's actually the nehruvian rate of growth so that is fabian socialism at work if you look at other Uh, socialist countries like the USSR, they did not adopt the Fabian socialism model. They they went all out uh, at industrialization. They industrialized the whole country. The Chinese also industrialized the country rapidly. Right? So uh, Nehru adopted the worst possible form of socialism. If he had adopted the USSR model, India would have been industrialized rapidly. It would not have been very smooth. It would not have been the best way to do it, but it would have at least industrialized India. But no, he was at heart a Fabian socialist. He was more in sync with countries like the USSR and China, as we know very well. And he did not agree with uh, with uh, the capitalist system that is that is always been there, part of the US and to some extent the UK. So that's the conflicted soul that Mr. Nehru was, Vaibhav says, what's your take on Chemetic Yoga? It is sometimes said that the oldest version of it, that Chemetic Yoga is the oldest version of Yoga even though it is nothing more than a handful of poses and Yoga has a lot more varieties and so on. So you know what? In ancient Egypt, they have found some hieroglyphic symbols with some contortionists, etc. And some individuals in the US have tried to interpret that as yoga. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me share my screen. So this is what they call Kemetic Yoga. So in, in Egypt, there have been some... I mean, does this look like yoga to you guys? Does this look like yoga? <laughs> does this look like yoga? This this thing here. These are some random Egyptian poses. They now call them yoga glyphs. And they are trying to now claim that yoga is actually Egyptian in origin. Because there have been some some random poses like this. They have found in some places in Egyptian uh, inscriptions, hieroglyphics. And this movement, this, this claim that uh, yoga is Egyptian or African, it doesn't come from Africa or Egypt. It comes from the United States. The Americans are trying to appropriate yoga by calling it a black thing because nowadays, uh, you know how, how things are in US society. So they are saying yoga is actually African in origin. It's not Indian and it's older than India and so on. It is all just lies. A few people contortions doesn't make yoga. Yoga is is not... So they are trying to reduce yoga to just a few poses. Just a few physical poses is what yoga is. That's what they are trying to do. So they are reducing the entire philosophical system of yoga to a few exercises, to a few physical poses. Yoga, as I have spoken about in the past, is an entire philosophical worldview. It's an entire philosophical system. There are nine philosophical uh, schools of thought in Indian uh, history, in cultural civilization. Yoga, Sankhya Mimansa and so on so forth. Yoga is one of them. It's a very intricate, very detailed, uh, philosophical worldview. It takes a lot of time to study. It's not just the physical aspect. It's it's much more than that. So this is what's being done right now. It is not being driven from the from the African countries. It is being driven by Americans. They are trying to do cultural appropriation, cultural theft theft of India's heritage. And we know that uh, we, we have that there are examples of yoga poses, archaeological examples of yoga poses in the Saraswati Sindhu civilization which are way older than anything you find in Egypt. But you know how propaganda works, just keep repeating the same lie over and over and over again and then people start believing it. So that is what's happening. Just like they stole Pranayam and uh, cold air, cold water treatment from Indian sadhus, the so-called Wim Hof method, right? Same way, they're trying to steal yoga now and they're trying to say that it's a, it's an African thing, which is just lies, you know. So, don't fall prey to this and I wish the Indian government would do something about this to properly reclaim yoga. Just just uh, shouting slogans and, and all that is not going to do anything. World Yoga Day is not going to make yoga Indian. Anybody can still claim yoga, right? So, something has to be done. And I have spoken about what needs to be done to reclaim yoga properly as an Indian civilizational, uh, as India's civilizational heritage. So, I don't know. Hopefully, someday they will wake up. Our people, our government, Ministry of Culture. What are they doing? I wonder. Okay, this is by Gaurav Sharma. This is by Gaurav Sharma. Gaurav Sharma says... Having lived in Europe, the evil woke culture, as you call it, Abhijit, helps a lot of Indians assimilate in European society. People are more conscious over not trespassing your identity or making casual racist remarks, which can strike deep. Once a so-called anti-voke Eastern European guy made casual remarks on how India's streets are filled with whatever, uh, open toilet and all. My other colleagues who identify themselves as liberals came to defense and praised how beautiful country India is and they shut the guy up. This is just my experience. Everything should be done judiciously, Abhijit. Neither to left nor to right. Come on, Abhijit. And why migrate into Europe or West? A lot of Indians have to unfortunately do it for the earning opportunities. Our great, great supreme leader, is not able to provide enough jobs and migrations and brain drain has not stopped. A lot of Indians who face racism in the West are supported by this so-called evil, woke ideology. Abhijit, Abhijit, you are so wrong. Okay, okay, okay. So let's analyze what Mr. Gaurav Sharma is saying. Look, this is your perspective, Gaurav. I respect your perspective. This is what you have experienced. Very good. Listen, let me explain something. I have lived in Europe. I lived in Europe long before woke culture even was a figment of somebody's dreams. I lived in Europe. I have also lived in North America long before woke culture ever existed. Do you think that Indians could not live in Europe and they would face racism randomly in Europe or or America before woke culture came? Do you think everything has changed now in, in Europe and America because woke culture is now saving Indians? Do you really believe that? Have you heard of Nimrata Kaur? She is now known as Nikki Haley. She had to change her religion and her name to be accepted in, uh, in American politics. Have you heard of Piyush Jindal? He is now known as Bobby Jindal. He had to convert his religion. He had to change his religion and change his name to be accepted in American society and in American politics. If you have a name like Piyush, they won't accept you. Have you heard of Mindy Chokalingam? She had to change her name from Chokalingam to Kaling. She's an actress. Otherwise, she would not be successful in Hollywood. Have you heard of Kalpen Suresh Modi? He's known as Kalpen nowadays. Kalpen. He's an actor, comedian, democrat. If he had continued calling himself Kalpen Suresh Modi, he would have failed as an actor in American society. Have you heard of Gitali Shankar? She had to be, she had to rebrand herself as Nora Jones in order to succeed as a musician and a singer in 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 the US why did all these people have to give up their indian names and change their religion in some cases in order to succeed in the US why why is it so and today you have woke culture that is prevalent in the US right why can't they uh why, why can't they own their identity and their culture and why why have you heard of this spantling Hinduism conference that happened very recently in woke America? Do you, th- do you know what the kind of things they spoke about? And the, the, the things they, spoke, they said about Hinduism? If they had said the same things about a different religion, that would be completely unacceptable. But it is perfectly fine in woke America, in, woke, in the woke West, to be Hindu-phobic. Right? And recently, uh, just now I spoke about how yoga is being stolen by the West. Indian culture is being stolen and appropriated by the West. What is woke culture doing to stop that? Do Hindus, do Indians have any respect in the U.S.? Yeah, sure. You can go there and work as a nice cyber coolie or something. You can earn a good, good salary, but you have to keep your head down. Don't speak about your culture. Can can an Indian lady wear a sari and a bindi in the in the U.S. Congress or House of Representatives? I know of uh, certain other ladies who can wear their religious symbols openly and proudly. Can Indians do that? Does anybody dare to do that? Invoke America. So I would like to know, (laughs) I would like to know, Gaurav, you know what? It's nice that uh, you have your perspective. Yeah? You have shared your perspective. That is good. I I respect that. But unfortunately, the perspective that you have, it, it is a result of seeing the world through a very narrow lens this is it if you if you broaden your horizons and you look at the problem from different angles and different perspectives, you will understand that there is no such thing as what you're saying. Why do Indians have to assimilate into the West? Why is that? why do Indians have to give up their identity as Indians and Hindus and change their names to assimilate in the West? Do people from the Middle East have to assimilate in the West? Do they have to change their names? Do they have to keep their religious and cultural identity suppressed to live in dig- with dignity in the West? But why do Indians have sort of do that? Please explain to me, Gaurav. So, sir, I, I thank you for sharing your perspective but I totally disagree with it, with, res- with the greatest respect. Right? So, that's just how it is. And woke culture, again, if it is so good, then what happened to the, to the natives of, of North America, the Native Americans? Why don't they have any rights? Why don't their lives matter in North America, the natives? Do you know the kind of marginalization they have to undergo? They are not second class, they're third class citizens in the, in, the, in, the, in North America, in both North American countries. Their women go missing, you know, routinely. Nothing happens. No action is taken. They have to live on reservations in, in third world environments. There is so much discrimination. What? Where is the woke culture there? So please, sir, try to broaden your horizons and see the world from from, uh, from 360 degrees, not only from your narrow perspective. That's what I would like to say. And this is not just for you, Gaurav, but for everybody. Alright, moving on. This is by Rohan. When it comes to rare earth metals supply china dominates this market by providing uh, finished raw materials at cheap prices from electronic devices to electric motors of cars and machinery everything needs rare earth metals this requirement will rise in the future do you think the dominance of china in this market is a threat for india and the world the percentage of raw earth of rare earth metal reserves per countries china 36% vietnam 18% Brazil 17%, Russia 10%, India 5.75%. A very interesting question. So, what are these rare earths that uh, Rohan is referring to? Rare earths are metallic elements that belong to the lanthanide series on the periodic table. Scandium, yttrium, and a number of other metals are part of this. They are quite similar. And they're they are also found all together or most often. That's how it is. And they are components in high technology devices, in LED lights, in smartphones, in computer monitors, flat screen TVs, digital cameras, and defense equipment. So they are very important. And China actually accounts for more than 95% of the global supply of these rare earth metals. So China has a stranglehold on the global supply and that gives it a very significant geopolitical edge in the world. If you don't uh, accede to China's whims and demands, then they can squeeze you out. They can cut off the supply of these valuable, indispensable, rare earth metals to your market and then you won't be able to manufacture any of these high technology devices. So let's say India wants to become uh, Atmanirbhar in manufacturing. India wants to start manufacturing all these devices. But if we are completely dependent on China for these things, then we have to agree to the, to the one China policy. We have to keep quiet on Tibet. We have to keep quiet about the Uyghurs. We have to not support Taiwan. Do you understand how geopolitics works? These things ma- China currently has a stranglehold on the global supply of rare earths. That gives it a a formidable geopolitical advantage. So it is high time for the uh, the world to diversify. In India, I'm not sure if you are saying it's 5.75% of the world's uh, reserves of of rare earth metals. I don't see any reason to not believe that. So in case that is correct, then well, India needs to look more. India is an enormous subcontinent. Why should there not be more reserves of rare earths in, in India? So I think we need to do more prospecting, more, more digging. And I'm sure we'll be able to find more of that in India. So India needs, and, and the whole world needs to diversify their supply of these extremely valuable metals and try to move away from the Chinese dependence. So as of today, China has a very formidable geopolitical advantage because it has a stranglehold on the global market of this very important resource. So it's a very good point to bring up Rohan, very good. Okay Karan says, you always say that a degree doesn't matter, but how can a person like me who wants to pursue a career in pure mathematics earn without getting a degree? So I have said a degree doesn't matter in most cases. In the future, degrees really won't matter if you, if you want to get a job. If you want to get a job in a a private company or something like, for instance, I've given the example of Tesla, which doesn't require a degree anymore. As long as you have the skills, they will give you the job. Sooner or later, the same thing will happen in India because now the whole world is changing. AI is taking over. Automation is taking over. Now, the people with the skills uh, who are the most comfortable at, at learning high technology will get jobs, whether they have degrees or not, it's going to happen in the next 5 to 10 years, it's going to start happening. But when it comes to academia, that's where degrees will always matter. So academia is not the real world, it's it's a different environment. If you want to be a mathematician and pursue a career in academia, in pure mathematics, in that case, you will need a degree. That In that case, there is no workaround. If you want to do a job in a private company, in business, in entrepreneurship, or whatever, and you and pursue mathematics, pure mathematics in your free time, then you don't need a degree. But if you want to have a career as a professor or a researcher in pure mathematics in a university or college or something, in that case, you will need a degree. So this applies what I have said. It applies to the real world. The academic world is a, is a different world. It's a, it's a parallel universe of sorts. The rules are different there. The, everything is different there. So, if you want to be a part of the academic universe, in that case, a degree is mandatory. But in the real world, very soon, degrees won't matter at all. So, that's what I have to say about this, sir. Okay, Out says, why is gravity such a weak force? That's an interesting question. So, here's the number the force of uh, there are four fundamental interactions four fundamental forces that we know of the strong nuclear force the weak nuclear force the electromagnetic force and the and the force of gravitation the uh, the fo- gravity is the weakest force that we know of it is 10 raised to 40 times weaker that is one with 40 zeros after it it is that much weaker than the electromagnetic force that's how weak gravity is. Now, why is it so weak? We don't quite know. That is the great mystery of gravity. We don't understand gravity. Nobody can answer this question as of today. Why gravity is such a weak force? For instance, we have been able to trace back the origins of the other three forces to quantum particles, to the to the, uh, to, the to the bosons. So the strong electromagnetic, uh, the, the, the strong nucleus boson, its its mediator particle. Is the gluon the weak force has the uh, W and Z bosons, and 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 the and the electromagnetic force is mediated by the photon. So these are the quantum particles that mediate these forces. In the case of gravity, we believe we have hypothesized that the force that the, the particle, the boson that mediates the force of gravity is the graviton, but we have never been able to observe the graviton thus far. It it may be a very long time before we are even able to create an experimental apparatus that may possibly be able to do it. So, and, and here's the thing, gravity is described by general relativity, which describes it from a sub-millimeter uh, scale to the largest scales of the universe, light years, parsecs, and so on. So it's a very accurate theory, but this theory itself shows where it fails. Because the Einstein equations, the Einstein field equations, they break down when you reach the center of a black hole. They throw up these infinities, and infinity tells you that the equation is broken down. The theory has a flaw. The theory has a flaw because it cannot describe uh, the ultra microscopic uh, behavior of gravity so that's that's what we need to try we need to fix we need to find a quantum theory of gravity if we are able to do that then we may be able to understand better why gravity is so much weaker than the other four other three forces that we know of so as of today gravity is the big mystery and it seems to be intrinsically tied to the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy right? So that's where we are today. As of today, we don't have an answer to why gravity is so weak. Like the same way we don't have an an answer to the question of what caused the Big Bang to happen. We know it happened. We know we have some idea of how the universe expanded and what happened, but we don't know what caused the Big Bang to actually happen, right? So there are many mysteries in physics, in cosmology, in astrophysics that we still don't have answers to, and one of these fundamental mysteries is gravity. It's a very interesting and very good question to ask. And that's what all theoretical physicists are currently asking themselves. They're trying to find the answer to this question. Okay, Arnav says, Are the principles of Ram Rajya and niti the same, or would they differ? So Ram Rajya is about internal governance. It's about, um, it's about creating... Um, a kingdom, a culture, a society, a civilization that is governed internally by Dharma in the, in the most Dharmic way possible, which uh, which is the best form of governance. So that is Ram Rajya. It's about internal governance, it's about good governance, it's about Dharmic governance. That is Ram Rajya. Chanakyaniti is entirely different. So, Ramayana. Lord Rama is supposed to have lived during the Satya Yogi, right? Satya, Satya Yuga, in which the world was very, very good. The worst form of evil you could imagine was Ravan. In today's world, which is Kalyug, you have Ravan's everywhere. Right? There are people who even worship Ravan and they say that uh, he has been oppressed. So that is the kind of universe we live in today in kali yug so ram rajya is not possible in kali yug in kali Yuga, chanakya niti applies so the great uh, vishnugupta chanakya wrote this treatise the Arthashastra, shastra which is the shastra of pure power in the it's he is supposed to have lived about 500 bc or thereabouts so that's when he wrote this he was the mentor of the great emperor chandragupta maurya emperor of india And uh, so it is is a treatise about real politics. It's about how to deal with your competitors, with your adversaries, It deals with internal governance. It deals with internal enemies and enemies of the state, enemies of the nation, enemies of the culture. It deals with external enemies. It deals with statecraft, it deals with spycraft, it deals with geopolitics, multiple levels of geopolitics and all that. So it is an extremely realistic worldview It is all about hard power and various applications of power. It is the encyclopedia of power, but it is a practical handbook of how to wield and apply power. So these are very, very different treatises. Uh, I mean, there is no treatise on Ram Rajya, but the concept, right? So these are very different concepts, very different. Ram Rajak is not possible in today's environment, in today's society, in today's world. If Satyug were to happen again, then Ram Rajya can be uh, made possible. So Chanakinity is all about, it's all about being realistic about the nature of the world, that you have Ravans everywhere or, or even people who are way worse than Ravan. So it's very different, in short. Mayank says, what are your views about finding Buddhist caves? Behind below the Somnath Temple, by one of the IITs. Okay, I, I checked, after I saw this question of yours, I checked out the thing, uh, the news report. Uh, they have found, see, the Somnath Temple is a very, very, very ancient, sacred site of the Indian people, of us Indian people. Uh, it it was destroyed multiple times by the Turks, by the, by the Islamic invaders, multiple times. The last person to destroy it was the was the great barbarian Aurangzeb, right? So this temple has been destroyed many times. It has been rebuilt every time. And I suppose the oldest version of this temple would have existed at the same location many thousands of years ago. It's quite possible. It is one of the great Jyotirlingas, a tradition that goes back to the very dawn of Indian civilization, right? So they have what, uh, what the archaeological uh, findings are, they have used LIDAR. Which is ground penetrating radar to look below the site of the modern somna temple. And they have found evidence of uh, some structure, very ancient structure, below the surface uh, of the below the surface where the, uh, the modern temple uh, currently stands. So there is no surprise about that. But there is no, I have not seen any report that says that so this is a Buddhist structure or a Buddhist cave or any such thing. What they have found is that they have found possibly the foundation of a very old temple, which was destroyed long ago. So that's what has been found. There is, from what I have seen, there is no evidence of any kind of Buddhist structure below the Somnath Temple, right? So if you if you have such a, so any such thing, please uh, share the link and I will take a look. But from what I have seen, I'm quite good at finding information, so I have not been able to find any such thing that that, that, that any claim that there is a Buddhist structure anywhere there. Okay, Avinash says, why do the clouds not fly off into outer space? Brilliant question. The clouds don't fly off into outer space because they are are a part of the atmosphere of the earth. The atmosphere is the gaseous layer that, that surrounds the planet. Because the atmosphere doesn't fly off into outer space, that's why the clouds also don't fly off into outer space because they are contained within the atmosphere of the earth. And the reason why the atmosphere doesn't fly off into outer space is because Earth's gravity keeps it together and keeps it around the Earth. So it's a very simple answer, but it's an interesting concept, you know. It's an interesting question. I'm sure even I would have had similar questions when I was a kid. So, good question. Okay. Submay says Hinduism is the only culture which wholeheartedly accepts and respects LGBTQ people, LGBTQ plus people. I have many LGBTQ friends who respect and love their Hindu roots, but then there are many LGBTQ people who are completely left leaning, they support radical organizations and ridicule the Hindu culture. What is the reason for this? It is simple it is brainwashing. The academic system, the academia in India brainwashes people into hating themselves, into hating their ancestors, hating their culture, their civilization, their roots. And the same applies to LGBTQ people or non LGBTQ people. They all hate their own. Culture they hate. This is called self-loathing. I know really intelligent people, people who are good at heart, who who think that India is an oppressive culture, evil culture, regressive, patriarchal, misogynistic, casteist, discriminating culture. They support Pakistan's stand on Kashmir, and they support China's stand on Tibet. They don't support India anywhere. Good, good-hearted people intelligent people, but they have these, this particular worldview. So this is what this is the brainwashing that the Indian academic system, the mainstream media, the entertainment industry, and politicians impart upon the youth of India. So the same thing is done to the LGBTQ people also, because they are part of Indian society as, as they have always been. Hinduism or Indian culture, whether it is Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, I suppose sexism also possibly. So Indian culture has always accepted and respected various ways of life, including LGBTQ or whatever it is called. There has never ever been any kind of persecution or of or oppression of any individual based on their uh, sexual tendencies. Unfortunately, the, the these these people, the breaking India forces have not been able to find a single piece of evidence of such a thing. So So it's all because of brainwashing. The only thing you can tell these people if you want to make them think is why don't you pay a visit to Pakistan and declare you are LGBTQ since you love Pakistan so much and you hate Hinduism so much. Or why don't you pay a visit to one of the Arabic countries, maybe the Saudi Arabia, and declare there, I am a LGBTQ person. Please, please, will you (laughs) go ahead and do that? Then you will realize the value of India and Indian culture. It's as simple as that. Pritam says, should journalists be objective? Journalists are supposed to be objective. They are supposed to report facts. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. The real world is very different. Right? So, the real world is all driven by money and uh, it's driven by agendas. And if you want to be a true journalist, if you want to report the real facts, there are very few buyers of the facts and you will not get employment anywhere because the big media houses all have certain agendas. I'm not saying everybody, but the majority, the mainstream media, the, the Darbari media, which used to be there, which is, you know, who they are in India, they have always reported and they have always supported the regime that is in power. And that regime is not in power anymore, but they still support them because the money comes from there. And you see this phenomenon globally. Whether it is the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Guardian, or whatever else it is, worldwide, you will always find media that has agendas, political agendas. They report news with various flavors. Journalism should be objective, but it is never going to be objective, which is why social media is so important. And that's why social media is currently now being increasingly censored, so that the mainstream narratives are reported intact, and they are not uh, challenged too much. Aditya Sanghvi says, do you watch MMA? If yes, what's your pick for Dustin Poirier versus Charles Oliveira? I do watch MMA when I get the time. I, I have missed lots of the many, many, many of the recent uh, fight nights. But I do follow MMA. I'm, I'm quite fond of it. Uh, Dustin Poirier versus Charles Oliveira. I I think Poirier is the sentimental favorite. Uh, but Oliveira is the younger guy. He is, on a, he is on a hotter streak. And I think he has more, more tools. In the toolbox than Dustin Poirier. So I suspect it is Oliveira who is going to come out on top but so I know predict, predicting things is, is a fool's errand but let me just say it <laughs> that I think most likely Charles Oliveira will win this one. Right, I think I'm I am I'm done with all the questions. Let me see what's being spoken about. What comments are there? What are the comments? okay i'll take a couple of questions from questions from the comments what are your thoughts after the jaipur dialogues session you looked super intrigued yes i was really intrigued about uh, the revelations that uh, dr neeraj rai made uh, very very interesting revelations uh, he spoke about the fact fact that which i did not know about at all that the indian population does not seem does not have neanderthal ancestry what i have said in the past on this very channel is that All non-African human beings have between two to four or two to six percent Neanderthal ancestry. So that is what that is the information I had until now. Now, yesterday, Dr. Neeraj Rai revealed a very startling fact that the Indian population, the population of the Indian subcontinent, predominantly does not have any Neanderthal ancestry. I'm not sure if it has been published yet, but I'll look for it. I'll contact him and speak to him about this. But yeah, very interesting revelation. So if there was an Aryan invasion into India, from Central Asia, from Eastern Europe, or Europe or whatever, those guys do have Neanderthal ancestry. So if North Indians and so-called Aryans have European ancestry, there was an Aryan invasion, then why don't Indians have this Neanderthal ancestry within them? It completely wipes out the RN invasion claims. So that's a very interesting revelation that I found yesterday. And the, we spoke about many other things. So it was very interesting, uh, especially uh, listening to Dr. Neeraj Rai. He's doing very interesting work. So, yeah, so it's going to completely upturn the apple cart, the new research that is going to be published in the next two to five years. It's going to be a very interesting time. All right, let us. Hmm some interesting <laughs> comments I am seeing. Okay, let me see something I have not answered before. If I have got my views on Brahmacharya, I think I've answered that before. Um, I am not sure what this means. Um. Aninda, thank you, thank you, sir, thank you very much, thank you very much, appreciate it, thank you. Yes, Aryan picnic theory, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Is there any other question? Uh, what's your view on authentic, reliable book, autobiography of yogi, holy science, misunderstood that it's Kali Yuga. You know what, I have read the this book, the autobiography of a yogi, I read it more than 15 years ago. Uh, like I've said that I read to forget. When I read a book, I give myself permission to forget everything. And that's how I'm able to retain information. But unfortunately, it's been 15 years, and I don't quite remember exactly what was there in the book. I have an overall impression of, of what the book was about, but I don't remember the details. So in the in the future if i read the book again then maybe i will address this question but as of today i don't quite remember the de- details about the book so sorry who was queen didda she was a queen in kashmir that's what i can tell you i don't know the details of her life in great detail there is some controversy about her that some people say she was quite evil and ruthless some people say she was she, say that she was a great queen so that's an interesting uh, Controversy, so to say. Maybe I will look into that in the future as well. Why are there castes in Sanatan Dharma? Why can't we unite as Hindus? Some people say they have royal blood by their caste. What stupidity is this? You know what? I I observe this so I mean, you know, every day I get hundreds of comments on this YouTube channel, hundreds, maybe thousands. I see a deluge of comments every day. And I see a deluge of comments on Twitter as well. Unfortunately, what I see is that Indians are busy fighting each other. My caste is this and my caste is that. We are greater and you are lower and we are superior. You people are inferior. These people are greater and those people are greater. And it's constant fighting and sniping against each other, with each other. All I see is people fighting each other and trying to prove who is greater and whose ancestors did greater things. This is so unfortunate. This is, the, this is the consequence of the divide and rule policy of the British and after independence, after 1947 of the Neruvian and, the, and the later regimes. Divide and rule. We are still being divided and ruled. We had a Jati Varna system. It doesn't matter who did what in the past. It doesn't matter. What are you doing today? That's the only yardstick by which you measure your greatness. So I would like to request all of you, it is important, very important to know your past. That's why I speak about history. But we have to live in the present and we have to look forward to the future. It doesn't matter who your ancestors were in the past. What matters is that we understand the mistakes they did. We understand how great we were in the past. And we use that as an inspiration and fuel to take ourselves forward in the future by acting in the present. So stop fighting about your so-called caste or whatever it was. Forget about that. We're all Indians. We all have great ancestors. Let's work together and take it for, take everything forward. That's all I'll say. All right. I think we have... Uh, Okay, so we are at the end of today's session. Thank you so much, guys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, friends, for all these questions. Very interesting. I I have got thousands of questions. I'm unfortunately able to pick only 20, 30 per episode. So please don't feel disappointed that I did not pick your question. It is statistically very unlikely that I can pick everybody's questions. I try to pick the questions that will be useful for everybody as long as, I mean, in, in the long term. So... I'll keep doing this and we will have a session tomorrow, a live chat session. So until then, take care and I will see you tomorrow. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Good day.